And turn over to the book of 1 Peter tonight, 1 Peter chapter number 1. Uh, we're back here for tonight's study uh, where we've been for several weeks and uh, we're going to move on here and look at another thought here. We've been looking at salvation and then the amazing benefits of salvation. And uh, tonight we're going to look, uh, start, uh, kind of shift gears a little bit with, uh, with the verses and uh, it goes from, from those things to doing something. Uh, doing some things. And, you know, that's, that's the way the Bible is. Um, all of the benefits, all of the things, all of the blessings that we have in God, all of the, uh, just everything. And when you see that in, in the Bible, what it does is it motivates to action. And so uh, um, that that's, salvation should motivate us to some action. And uh, it's a strange thing to see someone get saved or someone say that they're saved and, and uh, that not move them. And uh, I tell you what, there's a lot, a lot of that going on. There's a lot of mysteries out there, I guess you could say. And uh, I can't judge whether someone is saved or not. Only God and them know that. But at the same time, the Bible does tell us that we shall know them by the fruit that they bear. And uh, we also know that in the book of James, it tells us that faith without works is dead. And honey, a dead faith ain't saved nobody, has it? And so... Um, uh, so let's look here in 1 Peter chapter number 1. Y'all don't have to stand tonight. I'm going to look at one verse. I'm going to read one verse here. And I've actually preached on uh, this next section of verses before. Uh, I preached a message. I don't remember how long ago it was, but uh, I entitled it, What to Do Till Jesus Comes. And uh, that's in context of what we're looking at, but we're going to look at it a little bit different tonight. So uh, if you found your place, look there in verse number 13, where the Bible says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first word in our text right there tonight is wherefore, all right? Now, wherefore is a lot like therefore. And what's the rule? When you see the word therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for, right? Well, wherefore is closely kin to therefore. And so uh, wherefore is a word that looks back to what was just written. It means this. It means on which account. And uh, it's, it's several times in, in, our, in our Bibles, it's translated as for which cause. As a matter of fact, you find that phrase, for which cause, in Romans chapter 15, verse 22, uh, where the Bible says, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. And then even in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Wherefore has the same idea as that phrase, for which cause. It is explaining. And in the context here, the word 
word wherefore refers back to the blessings of salvation, which has just been emphasized in the preceding verses of 1 Peter chapter number 1. We've spent eight weeks so far. Last Wednesday was week number eight, looking at these blessings of salvation. So before we get into tonight's text, let's review them, okay? So some of these blessings are what I'm talking about here, these blessings. Uh, we see the blessing of hope in verse number three, where the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We, uh, we see hope there, but we see an inheritance in verse four. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We're talking about blessings of salvation. So we have hope. We have an inheritance. Uh, look at the keeping in verse number five. The Bible says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know about y'all, but I am certainly thankful that something a lot more powerful and a lot stronger than me is keeping my salvation. It, hey, I had nothing to do with getting, I mean, I had nothing to do with salvation to begin with, and I'm thankful tonight that I am not uh, responsible for keeping myself saved. I couldn't have saved myself, and I couldn't keep myself saved. I guarantee you that. Uh, but listen, what's the Bible say? It says, who are kept, not by my power, but by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And so we've got that blessing also, but then we've got the blessing we see rejoicing in verse number 6, where the Bible says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. I really am thankful that there is a season there. You know what that tells me? It means it's temporary. It's not going to last. And we should rejoice in the fact that it's only for a season. The trials and the tribulations, the persecutions, the things that we face because of faith in Christ, it's only for a season. So we see this rejoicing in verse 6, but what about in verse number 12? We find a privilege in verse number 12. It says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now we preached on that last Wednesday and we looked at those prophets of the Old Testament and how they were not merely, I mean, I, it just blows my mind how uh, they, didn't, they didn't understand what they were writing. The Holy Ghost was moving them to write what they did, just like uh, the men in the New Testament. But you think about it, I was talking last week about that and how Isaiah, uh, you you got to put, yeah, I mean, just imagine here, these men are writing about things they knew not of. They didn't know what grace was. In the Old Testament, it was all about the sacrificial system. It was all about the law. It was about uh, the burnt offering and, and the sin offering and all of these things. And here they are, uh, people like David and people like Isaiah and people like Elijah and people like Jeremiah. Here they are writing about grace. They had no idea what it was. 
And so anyways, that's what we talked about. And honey, it's a privilege to live in the day that we do. It is a privilege to have the Holy Scriptures. I mentioned this last week also. Those men who were writing about things they knew nothing of, they also did not have this right here. We have a privilege, y'all, because we, you can hear the Word of God preached. You can hear the Word of God in so many different areas. And you know what you're supposed to do with it? You're supposed to take it back home and look at it like a Berean does, uh, or like a Berean did, and, and study it out and figure out if what you just heard is true. All right, what a privilege that is. We have the Word of God. We've got a full copy of the Word of God. And when somebody says something, when somebody comes to you and says, well, da-da-da-da-da uh, and da-da-da-da-da, we can honestly, we can look at them and say, that's not true because it's not in the Word of God. Or on the same hand, we can say, yep, He preaches the Word and He preaches it right because He's right. It's there. And that's a privilege for us, y'all. And so these blessings ought to prompt and inspire us to something. So what exactly is that something? Well, that's where verse number 13 comes in. That's why we have the word wherefore. Because of all of this, then this is what we need to do with it. And so what we, uh, listen to me here, what we believe is only valuable as it is mixed with how we behave. And I just put it this way. You ought to behave the way you believe. Your belief should move you to behave in a certain way that you believe. But see, we've got a strange problem. A lot of people say that they believe this, but yet their behavior... Now they can't believe this over here because look at how they behave. You can tell what a person believes by how they behave. And so often principles never become practices. Skeptics, let me tell you, skeptics study the Bible, but are never changed by the truth of it. Let me give you this, Karl Marx, who laid the foundation for communism, he, he authored the Communist Manifesto, and as a matter of fact, uh, if you want to really get an eye-opening experience, you can read that Communist Manifesto or reference different parts of it, and you see that going on in our government right now. You see that going on in our schools. How to move toward communism. How to do this and do that. I mean, Karl Marx wrote the, he wrote the manual to it. And not just what it was, he also defined how to get a society to that point. And that book is scary because <laughs> we got people in our U.S. government's been reading it, I believe. If you don't believe me, go home and do some research. I promise you, it's eye opening. But listen to me. Here's what I'm talking about, Karl Marx. Um, he, he had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John memorized as a teenager. He could read over every one of them. And you know what, you know what he said? You know what one of, one of the, uh, one of the uh, famous quotes he has is, is that religion is opium for the masses. He, tells, he talks about in his, in his book, The Communist Manifesto, that you can never, one of the first things you have to do to get toward that part of society, get toward that movement, is to eliminate religion. Because all religion 
And this is the truth. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic. It doesn't matter if you're uh, Protestant or if you're a Presbyterian or if you're a Methodist. They all have something in common, and that is there's a higher power than our government. And so in order to turn the government into God, you've got to get rid of God. You understand? That's part of communism. In North Korea, do you know who those people think God is? The dictator. They do. Do you know that in, I mean, you know in Nazi Germany who they thought God was? Adolf Hitler. He was worshipped as God. There was no other God. And so in communism, I'm telling you, anyways... But here's the thing. He had that memorized. He, he grew up that way. He was in the Word. He memorized those books of the Bible, but yet he died an atheist. And so, that's an extreme example, but what about us? Are we aware of a truth that we're not practicing? Because your belief should modify your behavior. We might not think, uh, or we might think that we're doing all right because we're not outwardly sinning like so many, but the book of James is, is kind of hard on a Christianity like that because, uh, because the Bible says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, that's, <laughs> that's painting with a broad brush right there, ain't it? Talk about a blanket statement. Anything you know that you ought to do? Hey, sinning ain't just about what you do. It's about what you don't do also. And so let me just say this. Revival could come in an instant if every Christian would make one more decision. You know what that is? If every Christian would make one more decision, we'd have revival. You know what it was? To keep all the decisions you've already made. Oh, me. Right? If we, just, if we just make a decision to keep the decisions we've already made for Christ, we'd have revival and it'd be like nothing we've ever seen. Here's what Romans 2.21 says. It says, Thou therefore which te teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? John 13.17 says, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And so the book of Peter here gives us several things that we should do in light of the salvation that God has given us as His children. So the first thing, let's get into this text. The first thing the Bible tells us here to do is be girded. Be girded. Look at what it says. Wherefore, gird. That's a weird word. You see, we don't use that word much anymore, but in the Bible days, it was, a, it was uh, very common because uh, the common attire for men was to wear a robe. Now, right off the bat, when I think about this, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm real spiritual. I'm thankful for pants today. I'm thankful I got pants and I ain't got to wear a robe. I wouldn't do very good with it. I can halfway walk when I got pants on. But anyways, I'd probably trip all over everything if I had to wear a robe like these guys did back in the Bible days. But here's the thing. This robe would be very difficult. It made it very difficult to move quickly. And so the phrase, gird up the loins, in verse 13, carries the idea of taking the lower portion of the uh, robe that was below the knees, and they would take that and they would bundle it up and they would tuck it into their belt 
and thus freeing their legs so that they could run or they could move faster. Now, girding up your robe would give you sort of shorts. That's the best way I can picture it in my mind is uh, it, it, it would take your robe and make it look like you were wearing shorts. And so here's why I'm talking about this. Often, the, you know, the Bible says, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. And so this is a spiritual matter, but he's illustrating it with a physical truth back then. We, we wouldn't know what girding up your loins is nowadays, but that's why I want to explain all of that. But, but uh, often the things of life slow us down as we move forward for Christ, like wearing a robe would physically. God desires that we be at peak performance in our running of the race that he has set before us. And my friend, let me tell you, we are running a race. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 tells us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And you cannot run if you don't gird up your robe. Now these robes would impede the person from running or moving fluently and in modern day vernacular it would be like saying take your jacket off and roll up your sleeves. When you're ready to get some work done you'd need to take your jacket off, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Why? Because depending on what kind of work you're doing this right here will greatly impede what you were doing going to be a hindrance to you. And so I want you to notice three things concerning this verse. I had a 15 minute introduction. Maybe I can get the message in 15 minutes. Here's the thing. So let me give you three things. Number one, we see a spiritual mind. Now that we understand what the word gird means, the Bible tells us our text, wherefore gird up the loins of your, not robe, your mind. It's a spiritual application. And so F.B. Meyer wrote this, Our souls are clad with the flowing garments of various tastes, appetites, affections, and propensities, which hang loosely around us, constantly catching in the things of the world and hindering us in the Christian race. We must not let them stream as they will, or we do so at our peril. It kind of reminds me of... Uh, and kind of reminds me of that fellow that, uh, that died was uh, Absalom. And uh, he died by getting his long hair caught in that tree. He hanged himself. He hadn't had, I mean, I ain't preaching on hair tonight, but I'm just saying if he hadn't had that long hair flowing and, and streaming around him, he wouldn't have got it caught on a branch. Right? That's the idea. That's the picture that F.B. Meyer is painting here. He's saying we have these things all around us and they're streaming all around us, these parts of our garments and, and the world is all around us and they're getting held on to and they're, they're getting hooked over all of these things and if we don't keep a check on it, they're going to weigh us down. They're going to slow us down. And so the battle always starts with our brains. How we think determines how we live. No one ever does right or wrong without first thinking about what they're doing. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Listen, it's our responsibility tonight to discipline our thinking and pattern our thoughts after Christ and His righteousness surrounded by a wicked world. Uh, right thoughts are not automatic. 
but they are a result of a disciplined way of thinking. You must be disciplined in order to have these right thoughts. Our nature is against everything that we ought to do. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that, they may, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we do that? By the renewing of our mind. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, 4, and 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing in captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What is that talking about? Controlling your mind. And honey, it's easier said than done. I saw a thing the other day, your thoughts, your thoughts or thinking to your brain is just like body, uh, just, like, just like breathing is to your body. If your brain's awake, guess what? It never stops thinking. Which means if you're alive, you never stop thinking. Thinking to your brain is like breathing to your body. It just does it. You tell me, you don't have to think about breathing. I don't have to walk around and go, breathe, Jonathan, breathe, Jonathan, breathe, Jonathan. You're going to die if you don't breathe, breathe. No. It's automatic. And our thoughts are automatic. And you better be careful. That's why when I was growing up, that <laughs> be careful, little eyes, what you see. But you know why? Because someday in the future, you'll think about something you thought you forgot about. People are filling their minds with so much garbage. They fill their minds with all sorts of things. Yeah. You know why? That's, that's why you can go into a store and hear a song you used to love 20 years ago and you ain't listened to it in 20 years and you wouldn't listen to it today for nothing, but then you go home and all you can do is sing that song all day long. You know why? Because it's in your mind. That's why we ought to be careful what we watch. What we see, what we, mm, I tell you, man, I can't, get, I can't bog down on that. We can just keep going. I may preach that Sunday. I don't know. That sounds like a mean message, don't it, Miss Dawn? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing. But here's the thing. Let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this. Many people, after they sin, they often say this. Well, I just wasn't thinking. I just wasn't thinking. Oh, here's the thing. You were thinking all right. You just wasn't thinking correctly. You see, it's like this. The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, you know, the son, the son leaves and he goes off into a faraway country and he begins to squander away all of his money, his inheritance that he begged his daddy for. And in a moment of clarity, the son realizes his mistake. And he realizes that he had not been using his head. As a matter of fact, verse 17 of Luke chapter 15 says this, and when he came to himself. Oh, he was thinking because he was breathing. He just wasn't thinking right. 
And when he come to himself, he realized what he had done. You know what's wrong with a lot of people? They're thinking. They're just not thinking clearly. They're just not thinking correctly. And then all of a sudden, they'll come to themselves. Oh, man. I didn't what, have y'all ever had a moment like that? I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking something, but I don't have a clue what I was thinking. The Bible teaches us plainly that it is our choice as to what we think. And you know what? A daily surrender of our thoughts to Christ will bring about proper living. So here's the second thing we see. Verse 13, look at the next two words. We find a sober manner. Not only are we to gird up the loins of our mind, but the Bible also says be sober. Be sober. Peter's teaching the Christians here to focus their minds on the Lord Jesus. The fact that we will all stand before Christ should help us to be sober-minded. We're to take action, uh, gird up the loins of our mind, and be spiritually attentive. You ought to be physically attentive also. Be sober. Be sober. we got a world that hates to be sober. People want to drink. They want to drink alcohol like it's water. You don't believe me? I... I saw a woman in a convenience store at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday buying a 12-pack of beer. And when I walked by her, I about fell over at the smell coming off of her. She'd already been in several at 8 o'clock in the morning. It blew my mind last time I flew Nine o'clock, we're waiting on our plane to board the plane, and there was a bar right next to it, and the whole bar was full of people. 9 a.m. They drink like it's water. What about all the CBD stuff? I mean, you can buy CBD gummies now to help your anxiety. You can buy all of those things. You, huh? Let me. I'm not trying to be funny, but. I used to hate the smell of cigarette smoke. But you want to know something that smells worse than cigarette smoke? Weed. Everywhere I go. I got out of my truck yesterday to walk in a convenience store. And there was a car sat next to me. I about fell over. Nasty. You know why? Because people can't stand to be sober. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not interested in living a life that I have to be under some sort of influence to make it through it. If you've got to be drunk, if you've got to be high, if you've got to take this, that, that, maybe change your life. And I'll tell you the best way to do it, and His name is Jesus Christ. It's crazy. We ought to be sober spiritually and physically. And I ain't really preaching on the physical side of it tonight. I'm going to move on. But I said what I said anyways. It's the truth. Everybody's looking for an escape. Everybody. They want to escape from reality. Sad. But here's the thing. We're to, we're to take action tonight. We're, we're to be spiritually sober. 
What do I mean by that? We ought to be awake. We ought to be alert to what's going on around us. We ought to be aware. See, our spiritual attention will have a direct influence on our mental attention. And so a person that's not living for Jesus or serving Jesus or faithful to Jesus is not spiritually sober. They can't be. Now everybody these days, they want to be happy. We see it everywhere. Not, uh, the only thing that's important is your happiness. That's what the world says. After all, if we're not happy, we become discouraged and depressed, right? Well, I said I wasn't going to say nothing else about it, but let me tell you, you want to know, <laughs> you want to know one of the biggest causes of depression? Alcohol. It's a downer. Wonder how many people in America right now is on antidepressants, but at the same time they drink alcohol every night. The government's not going to tell you that about alcohol because they make too much money off of it. Maybe you quit your drinking and get you know get that addiction took care of. You may not be as depressed as you were. I don't think there's any correlation. I mean, y'all, y'all just stand back and look at what's going on around us. You've got, you've got more people drinking and, and, and the average person is drinking more than they ever have. But at the same time, we are prescribing more antidepressants than we ever have. Just saying, there is a relation between that. I'm not preaching against you if you have to take antidepressants. I know how that is. There's chemical imbalances and there's all sorts of things out there. And I thank God that He gave our doctors the wisdom to have But I'm talking about some things we do, we cause things. And in our, in our society, they're okay with it because you know what it means? It means they're just making money. Hand over fist. The same people, <laughs> the same people that's making money off of the alcohol sales is also benefiting off of your antidepressants and all the other medication. Everything just goes in a circle. Please don't misunderstand me on that. I know people need medication. I'm just saying there's some things in America that's awful fishy. But here's the thing. It's not a suggestion, it's not a request, it's a command here. Be sober, the Bible says. The Holy Word of God tells us this. Now, um, listen to me, Satan, here's the thing, Satan often appeals to our happiness, but God commands us to be holy. You think about this, when you read the Bible, the world says your happiness is all that matters. When you read the Bible, you'll find that God is a lot more interested in our holiness than He is our happiness. And I'll explain what I said. Well, God don't want me to be happy. I'll explain that in just a second. Satan appeals to our happiness. God commands us to be holy. Titus 2.12 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That word conversation is talking about your way of life, your actions, your thoughts, your speech, everything about you. Because here's the thing, true joy and true happiness, it's a byproduct of living properly for God. Yeah. He does care about your happiness. 
But He cares more about your holiness. And if you'll be holy, you'll be happy. Don't believe me? Psalm 146.5 says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You want to be happy? Be holy. Happiness, listen to this if you don't remember anything else. Happiness will never produce holiness, but holiness will produce happiness. So here's the third thing we see. We see a surprising moment in verse 13. What does it say? And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a surprising moment right here. We will have to continue this thought next week. But I, I titled this message, Be Ready. Be ready for what? Well, it's right here. The return of Jesus Christ. Why are we to gird up the loins of our minds? Why are we to be sober? Why are we to hope? It's because Jesus is coming back. And let me just remind us all that nothing needs to take place prophetically for Christ to return in the rapture. Everything's been fulfilled that He talked about. But the Bible says here in verse 13, we are to hope to the end, which means we are to set our hope completely or set our hope fully on the grace that we will receive at the revelation of Christ. Christians are not to hope half-heartedly or indecisively, but with finality, without any doubt concerning the promises of God. You can count on God. If you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, uh, which we all know it describes the rapture, you know, it describes the great event, uh, you know, it shows us that the Apostle Paul was anticipating that the Lord would even come during his lifetime. You know why? Because if you read that carefully, you'll find that two times he states this then we which are alive and remain. He's talking about that personally then we which are alive and remain. And hey, let me just tell you tonight, church, if Paul was looking for Christ to come in his day, how much more should we be living with that event in mind today? There'll be no warning. We must be ready. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52 says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Yeah. Peter tells the Christians in 1 Peter to rest their hope on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three different times within 13 verses here, Peter mentions the consummation of their salvation. He mentions the consummation of their salvation at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three different times. And, and you know, we hear a lot of stuff today about living your best life now. Let me just tell you what one guy I know said about that. You know what he said? I tend to agree with him. He said, if you're living your best life now, then you're heading for hell. Ooh. You know why? Because I'm looking for that blessed hope. 
I'm not looking for anything right now. I'm not looking for, for my treasure on earth. I'm not looking, hey, you know your best life now is a life lived for Christ. But you know what? It's not my best life. No. The best is always yet to come for a child of God. That's what the brother is talking about. If you're living that best life today, right now, you're probably heading for hell. Because for a child of God, the best is always yet to come. Always. Peter didn't just, we hear all this stuff, living your best life now and being prosperous on this earth. And, but listen to me, Peter did not have in mind a temporal deliverance right here from the Christian's immediate circumstances, but he's got in mind an eternal deliverance. William Barclay wrote this. He said, for Christians, the best is always still to come. They can live with gratitude for all the mercies of the past, with resolution to meet the challenge of the present, and with the certain hope that in Christ, the best is always yet to come. Because Jesus is coming, we are to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. Let's stand and bow our heads, close our eyes tonight. Miss Dawn, you come play for us.